It took us a long time to figure out this go-to-market, but once we did and we found our focus, we then started double each year. So between the fourth year and the eighth year, we went from one-ish million to 16 million. Don't play I don't do fluff. Don't do filler. Don't do emojis. What I do is study winners in B2B SaaS because I want to know how much is strategy, how much is luck, and how do they win. This week, Chris Federspiel, CEO of Blackthorn.io, a company specializing in Salesforce integration and application development. Discover how Blackthorn navigated the Salesforce ecosystem, the importance of customer feedback in product development, and the strategic decisions that led to their significant growth in the competitive SaaS market. Let's get into it. In the Salesforce ecosystem, there is an app store. A lot of people might know about it now as the app exchange, but it wasn't as popular 10 years ago. And I had a consulting company. And at the time I implemented a bunch of payments applications and my eventual co-founder had done the same with events applications. I had no idea about verticals at the time, but I knew there was a technical gap and I wanted a payments app that was a lot easier to use. And at the time, no one had integrated with Stripe either. So I wanted to integrate with Stripe with an app that was really simple, where you didn't have to build stuff around it to just make it work. And how long did it take you to uh, build it? And how did you land your first customers? I always think it's funny when there's this term of like, build it, because we've been building it for seven years and still not built. But to do basic charges and refunds only took a few weeks or something, but no one ever needs exactly what you ship. Sure, they can get some value out of the version one thing for a tiny company, but as soon as you start going up market, they need incrementally, not exponentially, incrementally more things. The first few customers, the app exchange was a bit different then. It was easier to get attention. So once we had the app on the app exchange, that process took a while, but that was not because of technical problems. That was like, app exchange bureaucracy, not just bureaucracy. There's legal things you have to get through and technical review and whatever. But that took, I don't know, weeks after the thing was live because we launched the app as free because we were getting a lot of money from services projects still. We looked more like a services company for our revenue at least. And we got a lot of adoption with the products and we probably had more bugs than we had adoption. So a lot of our time was around just fixing bugs because Salesforce is tricky. You have no control over how people are using the applications. They can write automations around it with custom code. Like you can't obfuscate the domain layer as much. They can still access stuff. So even though we did it a lot, it's not like writing a UI that you're completely obfuscating what's happening. So we ran into a lot of these issues where people were changing stuff. So it took a while to get through a heavy bug process while we were onboarding customers. And even after years, we only got up to 250k 300k ARR then it got unsustainable because at that point we had too many apps too many routes in the product and we didn't have concentration of customers across one specific focus 300k ARR might sound like a lot if someone's like just starting out with revenue but we almost went out of business we just couldn't really sustain anything so how long did it take you to hit 1 million in annual revenue and you mentioned multiple products so did you start building multiple products right away. I pitched a hundred investors in person and a hundred of them said no. Uh, since, so, since we didn't have any money, if a customer wanted something, we just made it. Unless it was completely outside of what we were doing, but otherwise we just made it. And then we productized the IP. The problem is we ended up with nine products. So at the end of 2018, I killed most of them. 
and we focused on our payments product and we started working on our events products. And it took us to mid 2019, starting in mid 2015. So it took us like four to four and a half years to hit a million ARR. Were you focused on one particular type of customers or who were you building for? I, I always thought go to market was like a dumb made up term. And after I was in the market for a while, hearing all the features that people had, I finally understood that it's a very real painful thing if you have no focus. Because I started out as a techier founder that just didn't understand how to sell stuff. I don't know if I still do, but what we did was we grouped all of the leads we were getting and just flipped it around. So the bulk of our stuff was for two different businesses. Payments had some concentration, but not enough to have a real go-to-market. Events had concentration around higher ed and nonprofit. So we flipped that around. The problem with any product is that you get a lot of feature requests that are not related. So it took us about 100 prospect conversations to find out what features people could group together. Because it sounded like every call we got on someone wanted a different feature, which was impossible to figure out. So it took us around literally 100 of these conversations to get some degree of concentration. We learned that if we stayed in higher ed and nonprofit, they needed almost the same features. So then we started doing all of our decks and our website. In Salesforce, there's 15,000 sales reps, but if you group higher ed and nonprofit, you get to like 200. So you can market to 200 people and you can make relationships with them and the solution engineer is there, but you couldn't do that to everyone. So it took us a long time to figure out this go-to-market, but once we did and we found our focus, we then started to double each year. So between like the fourth year and the eighth year, we went from one-ish million to 16 million. That really, really helped to figure out that formula significantly. But before that, we were just like babes in the woods. We had no idea what was going on. What is a go-to-market strategy? Here's Jeff Loeb from Chief Outsiders to explain. Uh, so what is go-to-market strategy? Really addresses three fundamental questions. Where to play, what to sell, and how to engage. So let's dig a little deeper. And uh, here's a proven five-layer model for thinking and defining go-to-market strategy. And it all starts off with where to play. So what is the target market and the ideal customer profile that we are targeting? Is it vertically based? Is it technology, financial services, healthcare? Uh, is it size of business based? Is it geographical based? Uh, very important to have a well-defined target market. Secondly, for that target market, what is the unique value proposition for the personas that we care about? Uh, what is the message that is going to resonate both at a rational and an emotional level that will drive urgency in the buying process? Uh, thirdly, what is the route to market? Is it inside sales? Is it e-commerce? Is it direct sales reps? Uh, is it partners? If it's partners, what type of partners? Uh, so how we're uh, going to engage with our prospects. The fourth layer is around solution packaging and pricing. Uh, so how are we going to bundle uh, the services and the products uh, that uh, we deliver into packages that are easy to buy and easy to sell? Uh, are we going to have free trials? Are we going to have freemium models? Are we going to have a land and expand model? Are we going to have good, better, best packaging? Uh, uh, all fundamental questions. Uh, and then finally, 
it, uh, there's a, a, the tactics that we're going to use to engage with our prospects, uh, starting with awareness uh, of our brand, moving through lead generation, uh, and then finally to uh, enablement and training to help our sales team uh, be as successful as possible. What did that go-to-market look like to accelerate your growth? There wasn't one thing. We still didn't have much money, so we weren't really sponsoring stuff yet. What happened was we started to beat some of our competitors, and one of our main competitors, the person who was running sales there, contacted me and said they wanted to work here. So that really helped a lot. He said he found me from all the stuff I was posting on LinkedIn. He brought over a whole bunch of people. So we got like six or seven people from our main competitors. That helped us to learn what people were asking for and where to focus, not just with features, but where the go-to-market could be. So one piece was getting the right people on the team who knew the industry, not having to learn it from scratch. Salesforce is a little unique because you get these implementation partners. They're the ones that hear the need of what the customers are looking for. So we found the ones that were doing hired and nonprofit work, and we started catering to like, there's like 10 of them. I don't know, but now we have like four or five key partners. So we trained them on everything that we had. And we said, anytime you get one of these deals, this is where we can help you win. So we started to invest a lot in them, meaning we helped them solution, come up with pricing. We did all the trainings uh, for their customers, which became ours. They weren't resellers. We still did direct. Then we started marketing to Salesforce. So whenever their team got into these deals, we would get brought in. And then, of course, we started to do success stories. We didn't win any higher ed until we got one which took many, many, many conversations, and then they all waterfalled. So now we have 100 universities, but we didn't have any until we had the first one. No one wanted to jump on the bandwagon. They all kind of grouped together when they buy, and that was miraculous. On your website, you list that you have five products. Is, is, is that right? Yeah, we have five. The reality is events is our flagship product, and that still serves as our core go-to-market. People buy events, and then they say, okay, we want to add these other things. Mm -hmm. So our engineering team, the bulk of our team is dedicated to our events app, our messaging app, our compliance app. Those two things have much smaller release cycles. We mm -hmm. don't really have go to market for them. These are ancillary things that people add on because we know our target needs them. They only mm -hmm. came as a result of our targets asking for them. So instead of them going to competitors, the, the messaging app and the compliance app, I actually bought both of those two and a half years ago. But because it's all in Salesforce, I bought them because of the tech. They were both single developer companies and neither developers wanted to stay on. I used their apps and I'm like, these are awesome. They didn't need integration work. They're both built on the same platform and they were just obvious to add to our stack. The storefront app came as a result of our two target verticals wanting to sell continuing and executive education. And they didn't want to use Salesforce Commerce Cloud because they had to pay like 500K for an implementation and another 500K for licensing. They want something that's like 40, 50K and the implementation is a heck of a lot straightforward. The focus is on digital goods, not like on physical goods. So we added that one as a supplement to our events customers. The payments business is unique because that serves as the checkout layer for our events app. So even though we continue building the payments app, all of our events customers have it. So it's not quite a distraction, but we do have a mobile payments app that's used by zero of our higher ed or nonprofits. And in that regard, we're still running like a separate business. And that one came as a result of one of our payments customers wanted a mobile payments app. So we're like, okay, yeah, sure, we'll make it at the same way we made everything before. But we've held on to it. The app just works. It doesn't need like 
ton of work going into it. That's how we ended up with a bunch of these. So even though it looks like it may not be related, they're all used effectively with the events app. Mm -hmm. Chris mentions opening features based on your customer needs. Rebecca Lynn of Canvas Ventures talks about focusing on listening to your customer needs specifically in this clip. It's kind of a shocking message, but the customer is 100% always right. What P&G taught me really early and what I try to impart to the founders is what you think doesn't matter. It's great that you can start with a hypothesis, but put it aside and listen to the customer. If you listen well, you'll figure out your direction you need to go. And then the thing people forget oftentimes is you got to listen for what they're not telling you, right? And that is equally important to, to what they tell you. There's some crazy stat that 90 or 95% of Salesforce customers have at least one app from the App Exchange. The thesis I told our company was there's a lot of apps that do events. Like it's not like earth shattering. Ours is unique because you can do a whole bunch of Salesforce automations that you can't do with like Cvent or Eventbrite or something. But where we'll help to build this moat is if someone installs a whole bunch of our apps, they get one contract, one security review, one support point of contact, one onboarding process, and they get like this ecosystem of things that you don't have to integrate. So, you know, none of the apps we have are like this earth shattering thing, but there's no vendor that brings it all together. And that's what we're trying to do. Is your ICP still nonprofits and education? Mostly. We do a bunch with healthcare and we're starting our foray into government, but healthcare has the same type of person as both higher ed and nonprofit. They both have technical buyers who want to understand the application. They all have marketers who need to reach their community for some reason. And then they have these power user people who are somewhere between very techie and less techie. And they're doing the reporting. They're doing some of the configuration automation stuff. So all three of them have similar ICP. Granted, they have different language that goes with them. So one of them might be student, one of them's constituent, one of them's patient, but the concepts are similar. How has the um, target customer segment changed in the sense of SMB, mid-market, uh, large enterprise? How has that evolved over the years? We've had to go up market because Salesforce has a learning curve. They have this massive system called Trailhead, which is literally to train people how to use Salesforce because you're navigating through a relational database. There's no next button in Salesforce. So you kind of have to learn where you're going. That means that you can't really scale with a $2,000 product. The amount of support that you have to add into it, the onboarding, it's just too much. So our minimum cost of entry is, this is not an exact science, but it's kind of like 10K. Our messaging app is pretty self-service. So we have a lot of 3K customers and they just buy messages and there's not a heck of a lot to do there. Same with some of our compliance app, but generally speaking, our average sale has gone above 40K now because the size of our customers have gotten a lot bigger. We have many, many customers over 100K, but in, when we were starting, we didn't have that for a long time. Our app didn't really do anything. We had no referenceable customers. We didn't have a team to fill out all this stuff. But these types of customers, they buy off of things that cost a lot to us. We have to be SOC 2 certified. We have to be PCI. We have to be GDPR. We have to fill out literally 250 security questionnaires. Who's going to do this? Like no one's sitting around waiting. For so like we need a team to do this. We need software to do this. So we pushed it up by necessity and we're still not break even. The term break even is sort of moving around based upon how we hire people. 
I did a big debt facility a few years ago. I'm still the only board member. It was only a few points of ownership. But in order to reach break even, we had to go more up market. So we're only like a few million off break even. We'll be there early Q2 next year. What are the channels that are working for customer acquisition? The biggest one for us is working with partners because when a company implements Salesforce, they almost always have a system integrator. We don't do very well with the ones that have five people. We don't do very well with the GSIs, the global system integrators. Like we'll get one or two from Deloitte or something, but there's like Deloitte, Accenture, Capgemini, YPro. Like for, for you to exist in their world, you need a thousand employees and a hundred million revenue. Otherwise, it's kind of hard to work with them. Of course, we have a few, but the ones that we do quite well are that the integration partners that will have somewhere between 100 and 600 employees, enough that you can still make a dent in the education. They're still working with app customers from the ecosystem, but it's vertical. There's 2,600 SI partners in the Salesforce ecosystem. You can't know 2,600 people. It's not happening, but you can know 50, right? And there's like a core 10. So most of our customers are coming from that. And then Salesforce helps us. They bring us into some deals. Salesforce is very good at getting to the top of an organization. So when they bring us in, it really helps because we're already getting to like the decision makers. And they often try to go wall to wall. So usually we'll just get into a department. But when Salesforce brings us in, it's usually going across the whole org. So the average deal size tends to be a bit bigger. So that's helpful. Then we have a mix of all the traditional stuff. We have some from events. We have some from SEO. We have a little bit from referral. We have some from the app exchange. How often are you paying attention to the competition? It's weird for us because Salesforce is kind of small. If we weren't on Salesforce, we don't necessarily have this niche. So we have to pay attention to the people that are either what they call native to Salesforce or built with Salesforce first. Salesforce is our system of record. You can do all the automation there. So that's our core competition. And then we need to pay attention to anyone that's building really robust integrations into Salesforce. So there's reasons to go with one versus another. But the reality is we have so many requests coming in from our customers combined with what we want to do with the product itself. The competition means significantly less because our customers are effectively telling us what we need to build combined with us having a thesis of where it's going. So there's the dichotomy between people that buy the app and people that use the app. The people that mm -hmm. buy the app, they'll be buying off of RFPs that have all these checkboxes you need to check. They don't really care about the user experience. But the people using the app, they're the ones that are going to attrit if they don't know how to adopt your app. And the, a lot of the requests come from both sides. So we need to combine them. And then there's all the, the cutting edge stuff. There's a lot of concepts with AI that we want to work in that no one's asking for. No one's even going to ask for them because they don't even know what the applications would be. They just know what their immediate thing is. So it's really hard to mix in these three concepts. Uh, what are some of the strategic bets you have made along the years that did not work out? We had nine apps and brought it down to two. We had like a web-based contextual like data normalization UI. So for example, if you were running uh, QuickBooks integrated with Salesforce, you would integrate all of your data to this central platform, and then we would surface it as a web-based invoice from your QuickBooks data. So that comprised two products. It was almost like an enterprise service bus where we were normalizing the data combined with a web-based invoice, and lots of people have those. And that became two different UIs. But the web-based invoice had to ingest the JSON 
that we would then change the topography of the screen you were seeing based upon the data we were feeding it. So those two things didn't work. We were going to make a signatures app and we ended up killing nothing. We made a professional services automation app because one of our customers needed that plus something else. Plus we didn't like the other ones out there. And we ended up killing that thing because we were just simply doing too many things. We had a billing application that we worked on every weekend for a year and Stripe launched Stripe Billing. Salesforce bought, with the acquisition of Steelbrick, they got Invoice It and that became Salesforce Billing. And then Accounting Seed started to get really big. These are all kind of niche to where we were at, but that ended us up with us killing that application. But each time we've killed something, we've taken maybe 20% whatever that thing had and rolled it into our other application stack. Early on, it's a heavy waste of engineering time. Later on, it's a heavy waste of go-to-market time because our company team is split like 50-50 between revenue and software. And now I'm finally seeing just how much of a drain it is when you have to re-steer the ship and lose a lot of that stuff. So we made a lot of bets where we lost a lot of time making documentation and the website and customer stories and having these like intro calls and all of it was for moot until we really nailed our thesis. Finding your focus is as important as building your product. Listen to Gusto co-founder Josh Reeves speaking on the importance of company and product focus. Why does a company exist? A company doesn't exist for its own benefit. A company doesn't exist for its team or for any one of the shareholders involved. It exists to go fix a problem. There's something painful or broken and a company is created to go try to fix or make that problem go away, to solve that problem for the customer. So in hindsight, is your lesson learned here that it really pays to focus? Yeah. The thing that's really hard to focus as a bootstrap founder is if someone comes along and says, I'll give you 100K if you make this thing, mm. and you have 20K in the bank account and you're about to die, like, do you say no? It's, it's really hard. If you're VC-backed and you have that luxury, like, stay focused to the extent that you can kind of morph what someone's asking for somehow and keep the focus, then it really helps. But it's really hard to make that decision. There are a bunch of companies that do what you do, lots of apps. What has made you guys succeed where others did not? It's not one thing. In using Salesforce, apps often take a long time to get set up. One of our main competitors took 40 hours to get set up, literally 40 hours before you could even start to use the app. Our app took an hour. So we made a drastic change in the way that we were um, structuring the config. Other things, we integrated other apps that others had not, and then we pushed it really hard. So there isn't a big moat when you do an integration, but there is if you're first to market and you can push that message pretty loud. There's another one in winning partners, because if one company doesn't have a lot of time, it's hard for them to invest somewhere else. I see it now. Our team is spread in so many directions. It would be really hard for us to do something different now. So starting off as a newer company, seeing where the other ones were, we could pick out where they weren't and then go after those areas pretty hard because they just haven't had the time to make the shift. Now, if it's like a mega company that's sitting on a lot of margin, then they could shift a team to do that. But if you're up against a 100-person team that's really tight on revenue versus expense, they're not going to devote a 10-person team to go after your thing unless it's obvious. They have their own slew of features. So there's some things that we were able to do by seeing what the competition was doing. And there's others that, to an extent, I guess 
we got lucky in that other players didn't start at the same time and try to launch the same thing. Otherwise, it would have made competition that maybe we wouldn't have otherwise hit. You've been building Blackthorn for about eight years now. So looking back, what are your top three pieces of advice for fellow B2B founders? This applies to product rather than services because services, you tend to make money out of the gate. And with product, it takes a while until you make the product and you have to pay for costs before you get a sale. And the only thing that's going to 100% make you kill the company is if you give up. And it's, it's really easy to wake up one day and just give up. You email your customers, you figure out whatever the liability is. Everybody loses money and you close shop. I haven't gone through that at this scale. I'd imagine that would be psychologically painful. I mean, based on the person, I guess some people don't really care. But my advice would be, if you want to give up, just remember it's very easy to. So push it until you think it's like the very worst, until you can't handle it anymore, then make a decision. Another thing I would say is I have made so many people mistakes that I have quickly gotten used to apologizing. I wouldn't necessarily say I'm good at it and I certainly don't enjoy doing it. It's a big drain on me. I recently put up this initiative for a department in our team and I addressed them all wrong. And all the managers had a call about me and I've now apologized to the team. They're on different time zones. So I did one this morning and I have one this evening and it sucks and it's really hard to learn. And I'd imagine every founder Everybody has some negative and for sure it's going to come up at some point in the business and you just got to apologize. And the third is it's hard to look away from 100K if you have 20K in the bank account for a deal. I guess expenses are always relative, but try to pick a focus and stay with it and only deviate from the focus if you've proven that it hasn't worked. If you pick six focuses at once, you're going nowhere. And that was a really hard thing for us to learn and commit to. How did Blackthorn win? One. They focused on a niche Salesforce ecosystem. Salesforce is very good at getting to the top of an organization. So when they bring us in, it really helps because we're already getting to like the decision makers. So the average deal size tends to be a bit bigger. So that's helpful. Two, they figured out their go-to-market. So it took us a long time to figure out this go-to-market. But once we did and we found our focus, we then started double each year. So between the fourth year and the eighth year, we went from one-ish million to 16 million. Three, they focused on a specific group of target customers. We learned that if we stayed in higher ed and nonprofit, they needed almost the same features. In Salesforce, there's like, there's 15,000 sales reps, but if you group higher ed and nonprofit, you get to like 200. So you can market to 200 people, but you couldn't do that to everyone. And that's how you win. I'm Pep Lam. For more tips on how to win, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks for listening.